Welcome back, Juniors. This episode, we return with Michael, Steve, and Bear as they draw closer to the Hyperborean capital, Ro-Pinmon. As they approach the city and a new phase in their journey, Steve contemplates how to help Michael break out of his funk after being told what Reedkeeper truly means. Now, back to the story. Chapter 34 When they set out on their journey to find a way home, Steve didn't know what to expect the Hyperborean city Ro Penmon to look like. But it definitely was not this, and especially not a city of such magnitude. He pulled at his golden beard in thought. After two weeks in the saddle, even he longed for a bath and a good shave, though maybe he would wait to see if Heather liked the beard before he scraped off the facial decoration. Even though the company was still ten miles from the metropolis, its walls stood out against the bright blue sky. Steve could make out spires peeking from behind the immense structure, and the walls stretched at least three miles wide, though the road that led them to the city stood perpendicular to it, making it impossible to see how far the walls extended past its corners. Steve couldn't imagine how long it had taken or how many backs were broken to complete it. Now that is something, he said. Mike only grunted. He glanced at his friend. Mike rode beside him, shoulders slumped. He loved the guy. How could he not? Mike was a true friend, but sometimes he wanted to whack some sense into his melancholy companion. They had known each other since the third grade, and Mike was always down to do whatever Steve needed in a time of crisis. In the summer of their seventh grade year, Steve's parents had come within a hair's breadth of divorcing. Steve, who prided himself on being able to see, if not the brighter side of life, then the comical absurdity of it, found it difficult to keep his chin up during the tumultuous time. Being in a room with two very married, very angry lawyers was on the top of his I'd-rather-kick-the-bucket list. To say the maelstrom of his parents' marriage was a nightmare would be an injustice. Bad dreams ended when you woke up. But both in bad dreams and pending divorces, Steve felt powerless, and worse yet, humorless. So he did what any sensible teenager would do when faced with an apparent unsurmountable conflict. He fled. He spent that whole summer with Mike as the bickering Vosses hashed out who got what and verbally sparred over the ultimate grand prize, who got custody of their son. Mercifully, Mike's worthless father spent the majority of the summer working in Lake Tahoe, and Mike's mom didn't care what they did as long as they kept the house clean. Steve ground his teeth, remembering his mom and dad's sometimes-people-grow-apart speech, and recalled how he barely refrained from retaliating with sometimes-parents-are-selfish-and-immature speech of his own. Mike's friendship was a saving grace during those difficult months. If it wasn't for his friend's loyalty and his weird long night walks, Steve felt he would have lost it altogether, his family, his mind, his life. The summer ended, and his parents reconciled, discovering that they did love each other after all. He cried only once during the summer of insanity, because of his mom, of course. In a moment of courage, spurred by insatiable curiosity, he asked her how they had worked it out. She told him that they both realized that if they can make a person as wonderful as him, then they can find a way back to each other. 
He had flung himself into her arms and wept a summer of frustration and grief away. Even the smell of gold didn't compare to his mom's hugs. Steve looked at Mike's discouraged posture again and shook his head. He loved the guy, but man, he was way too hard on himself. Being told what Reedkeeper meant had knocked the wind out of him. It was painfully obvious that Mike and the crazy redhead had a thing for each other, and it was endlessly amusing to watch them flirt fight back and forth. Watching them was the closest thing to TV this place had to offer, but her last dig had been too close to home. Being called worthless by the people who made you could put a chink in any fellow's armor. Steve didn't know how, but for two days his friend managed to avoid eye contact with everyone while appearing not to, and remained at least 20 feet away from Zoe. Mike hadn't looked in her direction once, even though Steve caught many furtive glances from the girl. Her looks ranged from guilt to outright anger. Mikey sure knew how to pick him. Steve decided it was time to strap on his thinking cap and bust his friend free of the self-loathing spiral. It wasn't going to be easy. Michael Reed was a world champion brooder, and right now he was in the zone. Hey, Reed! He started with his last name. It always sounded cooler, Steve thought, calling someone by their last name. Remember Brett Fetters? No response. Steve persisted. Sophomore year, right? When he kept bumping you with his shoulder? Brett Fetters was a prick, and for some reason he had focused his prickishness on Mike. He always seemed to draw the attention of guys like that. Steve wasn't sure why bullies and creeps fixated on Mike. Jealousy? Steve doubted it. He suspected it was because Michael possessed an inherent goodness that most people lacked, not a goody-two-shoes type of thing. Michael just never judged anyone. He was too busy judging himself. Steve remembered watching in horror as Michael told a teacher that he had gotten an answer wrong, that Mr. Doug had marked it correct. Disbelief and suspicion flashed across the teacher's face and then gave Mike a warm smile and told him that sometimes he should just accept good fortune for what it was. Mike just shrugged, and Steve could tell that he thought nothing of the exchange. It was just the right thing to do. Steve thought that the world had fooled itself into believing that deep down inside, most people are good. But one look around and it was obvious that they're not. And the few who really were good? Well, people like Brett Fetters are driven to make life hell for them. Was it fifth period or sixth period P.E.? Remember, he would walk in while we were walking out, and he would knock you with his shoulder as you went by. Sixth, Mike grunted. That's right, second to last class of the day. Steve smiled. How long did he keep that up for? A week? Yeah. What a prick. I remember thinking, here he comes again, and you just, you know, how did you do that? Michael shrugged. I don't know. I remember thinking how sick I was of him, and all the guys like him. I hate bullies. So I just pushed him back. Dude, you didn't just push him back. He flew. Michael grew a ghost of a smile. I was pretty amped, and I think I caught his chest in just the right spot. Honestly, I was as surprised as you were. It had been a made-for-TV moment, and Steve loved it. For a week, Brett intentionally knocked Mike with his shoulder as he strode past him in the narrow aisle in some type of display of pubescent male posturing. Steve had said nothing during each exchange. Mike could fight his own battles, but it had been hard to watch. 
The first time, Mike apologized for bumping into Brett. The next day, he tried to maneuver out of the way. Eventually, Mike had gotten his fill of being pushed around and pushed back. Brett launched back a half a dozen feet when Michael shoved him. Steve thought he would have flown farther, but the blind in front of the locker room entrance stopped him. And you just walked past without saying anything, Steve said, like like the actor walks away from an explosion blasting in the background. Mike beamed. I remember thinking there's nothing I could say that'd make this moment any cooler. So true, Steve said. He never bothered you after that, did he? Nope. Well done, my friend. Well done. Steve decided to ride in silence and let Mike marinate in his past victory. Mike showed signs of shaking off the funk, but Steve didn't want to push it. Steve looked around at his companions riding quietly towards the enormous walls. Originally, they had emerged from the forest. Steve had welcomed the sense of freedom that came from not being crowded by the trees. At first, it felt great being able to see in more than ten feet in any given direction. But now, he felt exposed, and he could sense that the rest of the troop felt the same. He had grown accustomed of only seeing a few metif at a time as the girls moved in and out of the forest with little to no sound. Now, seeing the entire group together, they appeared less intimidating and almost vulnerable. It reminded him of when he met a superhero. His mom had pulled a few strings, and Steve had gotten on the set of a television series, and he had gotten to meet Lou Frigno, the actor who played a big green monster. In all honesty, it had been a disappointment. In real life, he just looked like a big green painted dude. That's how the dryads seemed to Steve now. Out of their element, they seemed diminished. Only Leander and Xylon seemed unfazed by the approaching city. Man, I wasn't expecting that. That city is huge, Mike said. He looked around as if seeing their surroundings for the first time. I think we'll be there by midday. We should probably stick really close together. Who knows what these hyper people are like. And he's back, gentlemen, Steve thought and smiled. Have you learned anything else from the religious nut? Not much. They have slaves. Why does that not surprise me? I know, right? Michael shook his head. But it's different here. It's about people who are too much in debt or prisoners of war. They can eventually get free. Still, it's messed up. So, fearless leader, Steve said, what's the plan? Michael cleared his throat. Well, I suppose I better go talk to her. Yeah, Steve bit the inside of his lip to keep from smiling. I'll uh, hang back here. Thanks. Michael gave a wry smile and kicked his horse into a trot to catch up with the front procession. Hey, Reed Keeper! Steve shouted to his back. Try not to piss her off! Michael looked back and winked. No promises. And there it was. With one quip, Steve could see that Michael had determined to own the name and give Reed Keeper a new meaning. You're a good friend. Bear said as he trotted up next to him. And handsome. You always forget handsome. Chapter 35 Michael rode away from Steve, shook off the gloom that had settled on him, squared his shoulders, and prepared himself for battle. He rested his hand on his sword's pommel. 
Common folk believed that the secret to forging a good weapon lay in the metal, which was true. Slag would always be slag no matter how you manipulated it, but heat was the key. All things traveled the path of least resistance. If the metal was too hot, it would meander whichever way to its liking. Too cold, it would ignore any guidance pressed upon it. The secret was to get the metal to the perfect temperature, hot enough to be molded and hammered, but cool enough to accept direction and retain its form with strength. Michael's fire was hot, but not too hot, and it was time to show this red-headed ingot what he was all about. Good morning, Reed Keeper. Good morning, Bride of Hyperborean, he said as he directed his horse next to hers. Sparks flew from her eyes with the first strike, but he pretended not to notice. He nodded to Zine, who rode on Zoe's far side. Good morning, Zine. Zine nodded back. Michael Reed, what's the name of that city? You do not recognize your own home, Ro Pinmon? Zoe said coolly. That is not my home. My home has buildings that scrape the sky. Michael said, it was a lie. Atascadero was a small town. The tallest building was only five stories, but it was halfway between L.A. and San Francisco, which had skyscrapers. And you can hop on the moon from them, she scoffed. No, but my people have walked on the moon. She turned in her saddle to peer at him, and he could see a vein beginning to pulse in her head. Too hot, he thought. He relented. All I want to know is what to expect in the city. She gave him a dubious look and cooled a little. The girl was quicksilver. It is full of vipers. Yeah, I gathered that. But which is the most poisonous snake? They are all the priest, Zine interrupted. Zoe gave her a withering look, but Zine persisted. What? It is a valid question, and the entire race cannot be bad. Zine had to lean forward in her saddle to get a good view of Michael. It is said that the priest speaks out the side of his mouth, and those who say such things whisper them. The king is known to be very shrewd. Be wary of those two, and you should be able to keep your skin intact. Got it. Michael nodded. Stay clear of religion and politics. He healed his horse around to return to Steve. Thank you, Zine. And then added, because why not? Your hair looks very nice today. Zine gave him a tight, bemused smile and a slight shake of her head. He didn't exactly feel smug, but he was very pleased with himself. He had felt like a fool the past couple of days. Being called a worthless idiot without knowing you're being called a worthless idiot would put a dent in anyone's armor. He had finally shaken off his mood, he smiled to himself, and it appeared that he had finally came out ahead in exchange with Zoe. As he approached Steve and Bear, a small stone ricocheted off the back of his head. He spun in his saddle with his sword half-drawn. Zoe continued to lead the troop while casually examining her fingernails. He slammed the sword home and refused to rub his sore head. If you play with fire, the thought drifted through his head. Oh, shut up! Michael returned to the safety of his friends. Steve watched him keenly while trying to appear casual as a gigantic bear trotted beside him. How'd it go? Steve asked as he pulled his blonde hair into a ponytail. Well, she only threw a rock at me, so better than I expected. He turned his head. Does it look like it's bleeding? No. But you know what they say when a woman throws a rock at you? It means she wants to hit you with a rock, Bears said. 
Michael looked back and forth between the two and shook his head. The earth could crack open and swallow them whole, and Steve would tell a joke like some late-night talk show host with Bear playing the part of the straight man. Zine said we should steer clear of religion and politics, and I gathered from Zoe that you should probably keep your coin purse in your front pocket. And my warhammer on my shoulder, Steve shrugged. Basically like any big city. So what's our plan? Michael felt like he had waited long enough and rubbed at his head to inspect the wound. It didn't feel that big, and thankfully it was dry. I'm assuming she's going to take us to the king, and if that doesn't work, we'll probably have to go talk to the church. So, basically religion and politics, Steve quipped. Yep. Maybe. Leander could help with the whole religious aspect, Bear said. Yeah, probably. Starting a conversation with Leander was the last thing that Michael wanted to do. Though it occurred to him that the monk maybe felt a true friendship for him. After all, he had given Michael wide berth the last day or so, something Michael was grateful for. Leander approached him once to strike up a conversation, but a sharp look from him had silenced the Hyperborean, and since then he had not ventured a word, though occasionally Leander would ride silently beside him, almost as if he understood Michael needed space, but desired to be there for the moment his help was required. It surprised Michael to realize it, but he felt a little guilty for being so hard on Leander, if only in his head. True, the monk could be infuriating and redundant, but he never had been nothing but kind to Michael, and there was only a handful of people he could say that about. Well? Steve asked. Fine. I'll go talk to him. Michael heeled his horse away and sought Leander near the rear of the group. To no surprise, Leander was praying again. Trusting his mount to guide him, the Hyperborean rode head down, reins resting in his hands. Michael couldn't understand what was being said, but the cadence of the monk's murmurings sounded like recitation rather than an impromptu prayer. Michael rode beside him impatiently for a few minutes until Xylon made them both jump. Leander! The grayed hair Hyperborean snapped. Michael Reed wishes a word with you. My apologies. I was preparing myself for our arrival. There are prayers I must recite and undergo a spiritual cleansing before I present myself with an offering upon entering Rome, Pinmon. An offering? Xylon smirked. The Chandonian priests have to make a living somehow. Why not fleece the ignorant? Jaius's uncle, Eugis, made the first sacrifice. Leander explained to Michael ignoring Xylon's cynicism. When he learned of the judgment dealt by Trindog to the 10,000, he took 1,000 head of cattle and sacrificed them in the field. Have you never been to the holy city, Ro Penmon? Yugis's field lies at the heart of it. I am constantly amazed at how little you know of Trindonian history, Michael Reed. Xylon scowled. Yugis was an opportunist, and he saw a way to gain power. He knew he could never take the throne, so he decided to make his own religion. Michael sat back on his saddle and listened. This could take a while. Yugis was led by a vision and was told a price must be paid. Leander countered. How convenient that he was led to a plot of his own land, and he originally slew ten helpless animals, though the number grows every year. It was Yugis that persuaded Jace to invade Hippolyta's land that led to Trindok's mistake. Mistake? Leander said, appalled. 
It was righteous judgment that guided our Lord's hand. The monk paused and wiped his hand across his face as if to remove his shocked expression. My friend, please, I know you are a good soul and I owe you my life, but others, others might take great offense at your words and still others may feel fully justified in silencing those who would say such things openly. Zylon looked at Michael, his face expressionless. He can be neither angered nor insulted. If Trindok were more like him, the Exothenea would not exist. Michael's eyes slid over the landscape as he pondered what to say next. The two fought like brothers. He didn't know how long Zylon and Leander had wandered in the wilderness together, but it was enough to form a bond with each other. He looked at his other traveling companions and felt a connection with them. He could almost see the strings that bound themselves to him. The ties that bound Bear and Steve together were thick cords that could never be severed, but possibly worn thin with time. In his mind's eye, he could see strings connecting each person in the traveling group, though some were thicker than others. Ganeus' string seemed to thrum with power and concern, and Zine's seemed pure, almost invisible like a fishing line, its transparency belying its strength. They were all connected by time and experience, and even battle, something that still boggled Michael's mind. They were sharing a journey together, and only those in the group would completely understand it. Sure, he could tell people what happened and do his best to make the listener understand, but it wouldn't be the same as living it. How could he properly explain the smell of horse and leather as the animals made their clip-clop sound of hooves on the stone road, or the smell that mingled in the air of unwashed bodies, wood smoke, and some type of plant native to California? It wouldn't be the same, and therefore the connections wouldn't be the same. He reminded himself that he had to be careful of the connections formed in this world. He had to find Trendock and get back to Stacy. Though he suspected that his sister wasn't at the tree anymore, he kept on having dreams about her, of her running after him and shouting that she was on her way. Michael's eyes were drawn to the city walls that loomed larger with each hoofbeat. They were close enough now to see the discoloration of the walls where different kings had added another layer of stone for the city's protection. He was still trying to figure out what to ask Leander about the priest and how to do the asking when Zylon interrupted his thoughts. Why are you looking for Trendok? And there it is, Michael thought. He wasn't surprised Zylon knew they were looking for Trendok, but judging by Leander's dumbfounded expression, the monk hadn't a clue. How'd you know? Girls of any species chatter. I knew the morning after we met, and you didn't answer my question. Michael looked to Steve and Bear. There was no way to consult them. My friends and I don't belong here. We are from a long way away, and we need help to get back home. You're not Hyperborean. Michael couldn't tell if it was a question or a statement. No. Leander looked back and forth between Zylon and Michael. He squinted his eyes, confused, trying to decipher the meaning between the exchange. His eyes grew wide with the realization and fear. Man! He wailed, a sound full of grief and horror. A plague! He gripped the lapels of his shirt and tore them apart, rending the shirt in half. A plague! A plague is upon us! He spurred his horse into a full gallop, thrusting Metaf aside, leaving behind a cloud of choking dust and startled faces. Men, Zylon whispered. He examined Michael with a calculating, distant look in his eyes. 
and then cracked his reins to chase after the raving monk. That's all for this episode, Journeyers. Next episode, we return to see Heather, Stacy, and Ken as they travel by sea to reach the Hyperborean capital, Roe Pinmon. As always, thank you for listening, and be good to one another.